Welcome listeners to the Snippet Sports Science Podcast, proudly brought to you by EliteForm.com. I'm Chris Cavillio, joined today also by Jared Coleman. Stark, how are you, mate? Pretty well. How are you? Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to do another systematic review, and this one is regarding the effects of high-intensity interval training on Olympic combat sports, athletes' performance, and physiological adaptations from a group out of Brazil. This talks about the combat sports, which represent around 25% of all Olympic medals that are currently on offer. For example, at the upcoming Tokyo 2020 Olympics, individual male and females will be contested in boxing, fencing, judo, karate, and freestyle wrestling and taekwondo. The success in these sports are determined by technical, tactical excellence and supported by physiological and psychological development although the key elements for grappling and striking combat sports seem to vary slightly. Therefore, when you look at the difference between grappling and striking combat sports, the grappling combat sports rely more on strength endurance and higher levels of maximal strength, whereas striking combat sports depend more on muscle power and speed. Consequently, grappling combat sports contests have a higher glycolytic contribution compared with striking combat sports. To cope with the high-intensity intermittent effort pattern and the physiological demand in these sports, athletes perform high-intensity interval training sessions varying in terms of exercise mode. So in general, these would be running, rowing, cycling, and sports-specific type movements, where effort, pause intensities, duration, and ratios vary. High-intensity interval training has been used extensively in many different sports for a long time and has also gained increased interest in the research area. And also, you could say in terms of just gen pop, that seems to be quite a popular methodology of type training, that, that hit. It seems to be quite a good catchphrase at the moment. So this was actually a semi-requested article because my partner is quite into hit training. And so she asked if we could look into some of the hit training literature and give her a couple of tips, basically. So you might be seeing a little bit more hit episodes from us. Therefore, this review aimed at verifying the effects of high-intensity interval training on physiological, morphological, and performance variables. When you looked at the participants that they actually looked at within these meta-analysis, they weren't restricted by age or sex, but only athletes were considered. Only studies that directly compared high-intensity interval training, repeated sprint training, or sprint interval training added to the usual combat sport-specific training or a control condition were included. In investigations that used two or more interval training protocols, all protocols were described, i.e. the exercise mode, intensity of effort, rest, duration of effort, rest, and so forth. Studies with a minimum training duration of four weeks were considered. The focus of the present review here was on the original articles that investigated the effects of high-intensity interval training on body composition, aerobic and anaerobic power, and capacity-related variables. Before we go into the results of the study, I think it's quite important to understand the different types of HIT training protocols, and we'll just go through the four main types right now. The first HIT interval training uses long intervals, where intensity is equivalent or just below maximal aerobic power, applying effort duration lasting more than one minute and work-rest ratios of one-to-one, one to two or one to three, so one minute on, three minutes off, mainly focusing on aerobic power and the anaerobic systems development. The second type of HIIT training uses short intervals with intensities equivalent or just above maximal aerobic power of approximately 120%, applying effort durations lasting less than one minute 
and work to rest ratios of 1 to 1, 2 to 1 or 3 to 1. So where that would be, say for example, 3 minutes on, 1 minute off. Or in this case, if it's under a minute, it would be say 30 seconds on, 10 seconds rest, quite short. And this is mainly directed to develop aerobic power and the anaerobic systems. The third type of methodology is repeated sprint training using very short actions. So that's five to six seconds at intensities around 120 to 160% of VO2 max with very long recovery periods and directed to neuromuscular and metabolic development frequently needed in team sports. And the last type of HIT training is sprint interval training using four to six 30-second all-out efforts separated by three to four-minute intervals, allowing for full recovery, but resulting in very high aerobic and anaerobic demands. And I think when you look at those four types of methodologies, you'll see that in most typical type training, whether it's using boxing on a bike or a cross trainer or just running type protocols. Overall, nine studies were included in the review five judo, one boxing, one karate, one wrestling, and one taekwondo. This gave a total of 228 athletes, the majority of whom were judo at 138, 40 taekwondo, 18 boxing, 17 karate athletes, and 15 wrestlers. The HIT protocols investigated didn't generate any change in body fat percentage or body mass, but generally resulted in increases in VO2 max or VO2 peak, varying from 4.4 to an astonishing 23% increase. However, the most observed benefit of HIT protocols was an increase in anaerobic fitness represented by improvements in anaerobic power and capacity. The training programs varied from 4 to 12 weeks and from 2 to 5 times per week in terms of the training frequency. Very few studies use combat-specific tasks, such as Chris said, for the HIT training with most of the studies using running or cycling exercises, typically at about 80% maximal aerobic velocity to all-out efforts. Only one study included female athletes, which were analyzed together with the male athletes, so we cannot make any disparate conclusions regarding female athletes versus male athletes, although we can imagine the majority of these results are primarily only immediately applicable to male athletes. As combat sports, athletes are calcified in weight categories and frequently engage in weight loss procedures. The maintenance or decrease of body mass, decrease in body fat, and increase in muscle mass are desired training outcomes. Despite the relevance of these variables, only three of the nine studies measured body mass and four estimated body fat percentage. Do you think that's quite surprising there, Jared? It's, you'd think it'd be quite a simple measure to add into a study? The surprising thing to me is it's so easy to measure. It's yeah. almost, and it's, it's almost set as a requirement in most studies that you measure it. It's sort of your three basic required measurements, maybe four basic required measurements for any study on humans ever is age, gender, weight, and height. So you almost have it required as a study participant characteristic in the first place. So you just measure it again at the end, done. Of the three studies that measured body mass, two of them reported decreased body mass of about 2 to 3% in the high intensity interval training groups, and one of those three observed no change. Considering that the groups investigated were composed of highly trained athletes with moderate to low body fat percentages in the first place, and that the training programs were conducted for short periods of time, only four to 12 weeks, without any associated nutritional intervention, the finding of no change in body mass and body fat percentage, as reported in the literature regarding high intensity interval training, is to be expected. 
One thought that actually comes to mind here, they say that the finding of no change in body mass and body fat percentage is to be expected. Based upon our last podcast where we spoke about the number of sets, if they stay the same, you, know, you need to modify something in your training to elicit a change. Potentially, it would be interesting to know, are these athletes, do they perform these type of programs quite regularly? And therefore, if they're performing it quite regularly, yeah, they might have done a four to 12-week training block they're not changing a lot in their training. It, it may be a slight increase, perhaps. Does that make sense, Jared? So it's like if you get Gen Pop all of a sudden doing HIT training and they're losing loads of body fat and so forth, well, it's because it's a totally new stimulus, whereas these athletes are probably quite used to it. So the changes that you're going to get in their body mass and fat percentage is going to be quite minimal. Right. And it's a lot harder to go from 99% to 100% than it is to go from, say, 90% to 99% in the first place. That last little bit is much more difficult. Moving into aerobic power and capacity, aerobic fitness has been considered important to maintain the volume and intensity of attacks during a match. This allows for faster creatine phosphate resynthesis in the short pause between high-intensity actions performed during the match and to allow for faster recovery between matches, such as what we see in judo. From the seven studies that investigated the effects of high-intensity interval training on VO2 max or VO2P in combat sports athletes, four of them found higher increases in the high-intensity interval training group. One observed a similar increase in the hit group, whereas two did not report any change for either of the groups. This increase was typically about 4.4 to 23% in the periods varying from four to seven weeks. Some of the studies also observed a decrease in the maximum heart rate, which we believe to be due to the optimization of ventricular filling, resulting in higher stroke volume and higher maximal cardiac output. This results in an increase in the VO2 consumption relative to the heart rate peak. When we see that, it indicates an elevation in stroke volume and hence better oxygen delivery. The increase in stroke volume accompanied by oxygen use of the active muscles due to increases in capillarization and mitochondrial density likely explains the higher VO2 max observed in the studies. Similarly, Farzad and colleagues observed a 24% increase in time to exhaustion, despite not having a change in VO2 max. It is important to note that only two studies had the combat sports athletes train and test in non-sport specific modes. When we look at all the studies, it seems to be most of them focused upon uh, sprint type activities or off-feet type conditioning. Were there any studies that focused on more fighting or judo type specific movements? There were some boxers who trained using sport-specific movements, and they improved both physiological and performance markers. They also spoke about a study by Francini who used a special judo fitness test, which is a high-intensity intermittent task of 50, 30, and 30 seconds of effort with a 10-second rest interval between the sets using one judo throwing technique. In this, they observed an increased number of throws for the upper body high-intensity interval training group. Whereas the special judo fitness test, the index there considered a representation of a combined anaerobic and aerobic qualities of an improvement in the high intensity interval training group. What this is basically saying is, is that when you're looking at your sport, if you can try to incorporate something that has a level of specificity to the type of movement, that you're potentially going to get an improvement in a specific physiological capacity. I remember actually 
doing that, I think it was, it might not have been the exact same thing, but I think it was a similar training technique that we use when I was in judo. It's very demanding. You basically pull the person's arm and you put your arm into their armpit, basically. And you turn around so that your back is to them and you lift them up. And so you just repeat that. So typically, if you're actually doing a throw, you would then throw them over your back. But what you do is you repeat grabbing them, leveraging them and lifting them up onto your back. And so you're lifting up another person repeatedly and you just go back and you just keep doing that. So it's basically almost a mini low depth squat almost that you repeat for that movement. It's pretty demanding. And I think just in terms of getting the athletes to buy into the session, if you're having a lot of off-feet conditioning or a lot of uh, sprinting intervals, that's all good and well. However, if as a coach, you can find ways of incorporating some specific movements, even in say rugby union, I've done a lot of work there. The boys would love a lot of strongman and boxing and wrestling. And it's more so the incorporation of the wrestling, putting the ball in there, getting them on the ground in that tackling type position or in a ruck type position they seem to really gravitate towards those type of training programs. So therefore, you can add in the other elements which may have a stronger physiological benefit, such as like your sprint intervals. If you then layer on top of that some sort of specific movements, I think the athletes then get the buy-in. So you're getting the best of both worlds. All right. Well, rugby and gridiron aren't technically combat sports. They do have a sort of combat element to them where you have essentially high-intensity interval impact training like in American football, what we see a lot is you have a sled, essentially a multi-person sled with pads and you ram into it and push it across the field for a bit and you just repeat, repeat, repeat. Very demanding. Anyway, just in closing here, Jared, uh, any practical applications? So we need to note that these results are largely relevant for training from four to 12 weeks with high intensity interval training being executed from two to five times per week. The investigations we looked at typically involved running and cycling ergometer bouts, although Chris and I tried to relate as much more sport-specific movements as possible, with only two studies reporting combat sport-specific tasks. Intensity varied from submaximal efforts of 80% of maximal aerobic velocity to all-out efforts. It's important to note that these high-intensity interval training protocols typically did not generate any change in body fat percentage or body mass indicating that it can be useful to maintain the athletes in their current weight categories. High-intensity interval training generally resulted in increases in VO2 max or VO2 peak in combat sports athletes, varying from 4% to 23%. As aerobic fitness has been reported to contribute to faster recovery, these results suggest that high-intensity interval training can help to improve athletes' recovery between successive high-intensity actions or between matches. Moreover, the most observed benefit of high-intensity interval training protocols was an increase in aerobic fitness, represented by improvements in anaerobic power and capacity, which can potentially benefit combat sports athletes because these two variables are relevant to scoring actions and repeated high-intensity actions, respectively. Thanks for that, Jared. Really nice practical application to this meta-analysis. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. Remember to visit us on our socials at Snippet Science. Also our website at snippetscience.com. Thanks for listening.